Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, another day and uh, another Chicago older human claiming to have been treated like a mushroom over the issue of 10 cities. It's uh, Julia Ramirez uh, over there, the site they're setting up, the base camp they're setting up at 38th in California. She had no clue, no clue. That's what she said. And it's uh, Ronnie Mosley in Morgan Park uh, claiming the same lack of information uh, with respect to uh, a base camp they're going to set up at 115th and Halstead in the old Albertsons parking lot. Take a listen. We are in this room saying no. In mid-September, many people in the Morgan Park neighborhood revolted against plans for a base camp at 115th and Halstead, where an affordable housing complex is set to break ground next year. Monday, a city council committee approved that land acquisition. The ward's alderman wants answers. I haven't been given timelines about what this looks like, when they'll be on the site, how long they'll be on the site, what this means for safety for our community. 312-642-5600, 312-642-5600, turnkey top pro answer line, 64636, type in DA, then a quick comma. Because I, I don't know about you, Dan, but I knew that that old Jules parking lot, which they donated to the city, they gave the city that land, was going to be a tent city months ago. Remember well, right out uh, of the box when they were talking about tent cities, they were saying that this is a possible location. Well, we talked about it because of the community meeting that was referenced in that ABC7 report where the residents said no. You can say, no, we're going to go through the formality of a community meeting where we pretend to listen to you, and then we're going to go forward with what we've decided to do anyway. This right. is what's happening all over the city, and it's a, it's disingenuous for the older humans to suggest anything other than that. It's you, this you know innocent bystander routine is not particularly persuasive, and frankly, it's Pollyannish for residents to believe that they actually have input in this feudal system under which they live. I don't know. What in the last 50 years that has occurred has given anyone in the city the idea that they matter to their older human, or at least that they primarily matter the only to their thing, older human? Well, the only thing that matters right now are the immigrants or the illegal immigrants because they're giving them everything. I went by the 19th yesterday because I was trying to talk to an officer. I couldn't even get in the front door. There was mattresses piled up suitcases, garbage everywhere, three full garbage cans. I tweeted a picture out of it because you have to go around the side. I mean, we're the taxpayers. They don't care about us. And at the very least, you people that are out there, my God, pick up your garbage or make them clean. Give them tasks to do. Give them something. I'm just sick of living like this, and we shouldn't have to live like because they put them first before everybody. And if you just got your property tax bill, you'll see we had an increase for park districts. 
For what? We can't use our park districts. We can't even go in them. Well, they're getting ready to accommodate uh, more people, that's for sure, more uh, migrants coming to this uh, locality, this uh, little hamlet called Chicago. In fact, Chicago Contrarian has a memo to that effect dated yesterday, um, tweeting out, for those who recall the Biden White House secretly shuttling illegals around the country in the dark of night, the Chicago Park District memo reveals DHS is added again and using commercial flights. Well, we've known that for a while now. Uh, the, for example, the Catholic Charities in San Antonio uh, describing their uh, service of providing commercial flights for migrants who come into Texas who want to go to Chicago. That's where they step in with their federal money to fly them here. Since the first bus arrived on August 31st of 2022, the city has welcomed over 19,500 individuals and families with dignity. This is from the Park District Memo, providing food and shelter, rental assistance, wraparound support, health care, to put them on a path to resettlement and self-sufficiency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The um, city has had to make hard decisions impacting all of our communities. Since the city shelter system is over capacity, the city has now designated 24 alternate temporary shelter locations, including five park district field houses, in addition, the city is temporarily using 14 park district field houses as shower facilities for migrant stations at police stations and at O'Hare Airport. There's still more than 1,000 new arrivals sleeping outside of police stations and tents and other makeshift shelters as the city attempts to humanely shelter these individuals. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's getting chilly out, too. Well, yeah, and they're going to bring CTA warming buses, which they were they're they pulling up them. right now. That's, that's the plan until these tents are erected. We need more than the warming buses, but we need to take everything we can get. Yeah, that's my best friend, Alderman Vasquez. That's the plan until He's they have charge. a plan. Well, here's and right. the thing back to Mosley and, you know, how he didn't know, but everybody knew that this was going to happen. That site was supposed to be a Morgan Park Community Center. That was That's the final plan for it. So no, he, it isn't. Well, no, he, it isn't. No. It's affordable housing. Okay. And that, we and, deserve and, to hear directly oh, sorry, from the sorry, sorry. And what were you saying? It's affordable housing, and and oh, by the way, I mean just in terms of, you know, uh, can you find a worse decision than the affordable housing decision? Yeah, they found it a base camp, but that may be temporary. And then the affordable housing for those of the residents going to be out in in, Ma, in Moss to uh, protest that too. That's past post. I mean, it's just I say before, and. Uh, it's just what it is. It's just the ghettoization of one neighborhood after neighborhood in Chicago, and all 50 wards will be impacted. So, yeah, it was a, it's affordable housing. There was supposed to be community center because it's a huge property. Um, so they want to know, well, when you put the tent up, when are you going to take the tent down? We deserve to hear directly from the mayor's office about what this plan is for the site, how will residents be kept safe, how will our infrastructure be able to carry this burden? Yeah. Hey, Alder Human, um, do you know anybody who works in the mayor's office? Uh, we deserve to hear. This is where they pretend to stand on your side of the skirmish line, residents. We, I'm over here with you. We deserve to know. Hey, um, Alder Human, why don't you uh, go ask somebody when you show up for your city council meeting? Why don't you go over and talk to the 42 deputy mayors that uh, BLM Brandon has? That That's your job, sort of, kind of. We deserve to know. And he's pounding you don't want to know. Table. This, is, mm-hmm. this is all performative. 
this is all right. You're going to do this, but you got to take the heat because I don't want to take the heat. So I'm back in it, but I'm going to go out there and say we deserve to know. We deserve to know. It is performance. Gil, uh, Southwest Side. Hey, good morning. How are you? Good. Just calling to let you know, uh, there's an old Kmart off of 71st and Pulaski that's been abandoned for years. They're making that into a shelter right now as we speak. It's fenced up, and they're, I guess, remodeling it inside for when he's bringing these people over. You mean the actual Kmart structure? Thanks. Yeah, old Kmart, yeah, 71st and Pulaski. It was a Kmart for years. It's been abandoned for years, but they're putting up fences around there and they're remodeling inside to bring some of these uh, immigrants inside there. As we speak right now, they're they're doing it. Who's Who's the elder human there? Uh, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure exactly who it is. I mean, it doesn't really matter that much. But, yeah, thanks for the call, Gil. Appreciate the heads up. So 71st and Pulaski put uh, a push pin on your city map for that location, too. All right. Why not? Craig Mount Greenwood. Hey, good morning, Danny Mooney, and uh, thanks for taking my call. There's a lot more to this story that I, I'm thinking because there's, okay, three points. One was that the uh, no no thought, no inclination whatsoever for any kind of uh, checkups or medical or uh, vaccines or anything like that. That stuff is all, like, off the table. They basically, uh, this story about military-age men, it's like, uh, it's absolutely true. It's like there, there was a talk that they go over, they were recruiting these guys. They're all military-age young guys, and right, that they're jamming up in certain areas. These are like military bex, uh, barracks that they're setting up to have these, uh, these yeah, guys right. in there and everything like that. And the thing is, is they got a plan. We just don't know what it is, and they're not going to tell us what it is. But there is something going on under the surface with, uh, that uh, we better take and have our eyes open because another thing, they're trying, they're, at the same time they're disarming uh, law-abiding citizens in Chicago. They're bringing in these people without any kind of. They don't know who's coming over or what's coming. Talk about them. being safe. Yeah. There's no, no vetting process. No. And in regards to medical, so, if no they want to go to a doctor, there's a van there to take family members to doctors. But the kids don't have to follow the same vaccine protocol that our kids had to to go to Chicago public schools. The the plan is to continue to look for locations where they can uh, either set up a base camp or use it as a bargaining chip to set up a base camp somewhere else. They're just uh, flying by the seat of their pants. For example, uh, you saw that they were looking at the uh, hotel, hotel across from uh, uh, yeah across from uh, House of Blues. Oh yeah, and that this three thirty three North Dearborn to house up to a thousand migrants in the three hundred fifty room hotel. That accord that according to uh, uh, Alder Human Brendan Riley who took time out of his drinking okay. regimen right. over at Boss okay. Bar to uh, He sent out an email this. blast. Yeah, uh, They were strongly considering the site as late as this, Friday, this past Friday. I'm glad they've decided to abandon that plan. It was a terrible idea from the start. But they've abandoned that plan. But now they've got a bargaining chip with Brendan Riley. Okay, we'll nix that, but you have right. to, I guarantee you, you're going to have to help us with some other site in your award because, remember, we're in the business of equity. Two acres all 50 wards. And as the migrants continue to inflow, including thanks to Eric Adams with one-way tickets from New York to Chicago, perhaps they're going to have to come up with more space. You, you heard it from the Chicago park district, how they're having to utilize more field houses than they originally thought. And there's still a thousand people short. And we're never going to get those spaces back. 
We're not going to get those spaces back. There's no way. I mean, do you ever see that happening? Even we had Alderman Lopez uh-huh. on. I said, when is Gage Park going to be returned to the people? And he said, Amy, more people keep coming. So I'm like, okay, Orlando, well, that's an answer. Orlando, north side. Hi, Dan. Hi, Amy. I, I don't understand why we're building anything. We have all these vacant schools in the south side that tiny dancers shut down. Uh, just on 51st and Wentworth, literally there's a tent city in the police station. They're all around the whole, across the highway, there's a vacant school that they have to heat to, you know, keep the pipes from bursting. Um, you know, they got gymnasiums in there. They got showers. They got bathrooms. Uh, a lot of the schools and, don't and, have and, showers. A lot of the middle schools absolutely do not have showers or elementary schools. Well, they got a playground. They got a playground right right that's abandoned that they spent $125,000 there like five years ago. And now it's shut maybe longer than that, that they're just sitting there doing nothing just across the highway, literally yeah. just across the highway. Right. Thanks for the call, Orlando. Well, I mean, sure, you could uh, add showers and use those uh, structures. But, you know, with uh, with respect to some of it, you know, you have to keep up appearances. Uh, there's probably big plans for CTU to reopen those schools so that uh, yeah, they could right. put 25 people in there and have uh, the same staffing they did when there was 2,500 people like we have in some schools uh, on the south and west sides that are still operational at those capacity levels relative to past capacity. So, you know, it's all part of the rich tapestry that BLM Brandon and company are weaving for the city. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, the answer. Dan and Amy, top of the morning. Uh, this edition of Campus Beat focuses on uh, the Ivy League and our elite schools and the uh, uh, the anti-Semitism and general barbaric expression on campus. Uh, are you uh, finally disabused of the notion that uh, your kid needs to go to some status school rather than the school is that's the best fit. Are you going to stop donating if you're a 
graduate of Northwestern or the Ivy League or Stanford or Amherst or some of the other campuses that have been profiled in the last two weeks? Are, are you finally out? Three one two six four two fifty six hundred Turnkey Dot Pro answer line six four six three six D A Turnkey Dot Pro text line. Uh, somebody dug up this story from uh, New York Times, February twenty fifth, nineteen forty. How long the uh, institutions of higher education have been under the assault of the left, long ago now conquered by the left. February 25th, 1940, New York Times. Hitler leads in poll. Georgetown's students vote on leading personalities. Adolf Hitler was voted the most outstanding personality in the world today by the students of the College of Arts and Sciences at Georgetown in a campus poll undertaken by the Hoya, undergraduate weekly publication. Hitler got 113 votes. Uh, Pope Pius XII... <laughs> Coming in with second? <laughs> what, what did he get? Took second with uh, a little bit more than half as many. And uh, FDR got third with 35. Boy, wow. Hitler... Uh, Tripled it. more than yeah. tripled the output of uh, FDR there on uh, Georgetown University, right there in the heart of D.C., the heart of civilization, our nation's capital, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, the point is that hate and ignorance have had a home on these campuses for many, many generations. Now, I think that the devolution and the disintegration of intellectual integrity on these campuses has increased markedly in the last 50 years and even more so in the last 20. But it's been a long time. It's always been a haven for uh, threads, for uh, autocrats of and autocrat sympathizers of all stripes, communists, fascists, and so forth. Uh, and so um, we should be we should not be surprised by what we're seeing over the last two weeks on, in, on Ivy League campuses. And I also think we shouldn't be terribly impressed by the pushback to what's happening on those campuses. It is uh, nice to see and hear from some new people. Um, the level of commitment, I think, is in question if this will be sustained, if this will result in terms of any re, in, in, uh, any real cultural change on campus, I'm a skeptic. I'm a skeptic. And even more than the noxious rhetoric, the noxious anti-Semitic rhetoric on campus, on campuses, it's just a recognition of how ill-informed our alleged best and brightest are. That's what should concern you as much as the worst expression of their ignorance, the hate-mongering. And as a Jewish American, do you feel safe? I mean, look what happened in Russia yesterday at the airport. It wasn't, um, I mean, people stormed, broke down glass windows, stormed the airfield, wanting to see people's passports. A flight had come in from Israel. Yeah, and Dagestan, wa- which is a majority Muslim, Muslim region country. of Russia. Right, but they brought their Palestinian flags. They're hunting Jewish people. My God, if I was Jewish, I looked at that, I'd be scared to death. On Saturday, they pro-Palestinians 
took over the Brooklyn Bridge. And they proceeded to commandeer Grand Central Station and have a yeah. sit-in there. I don't know. I just, and I, this what is, is this, what 1930? This is what you're getting. Uh, uh, for example, this dilettante calling for corporate boycotts. She was wearing Nike Air Force while she was making that claim. Of course, to she boycott was. Nike. Uh, this this guy too is part of the the crew in the UK with their "From the River to the Sea" chant. They were just chanting there, "From the River to the Sea, Palestine will be free." Is that a chant you agree with? Disagree with? I think that chants and um, rhetoric aren't necessarily reflective of everyone's belief. Yeah. So, for example, yeah, "From the River to the Sea." Of course, I've chanted it. Do I think that all Israelis should be pushed out of the country or Jews or should be treated like this? Or, no. Do you know which river and sea they're talking about, by the way? I don't know the name. Uh, the the river... Uh, uh, I know the Mediterranean, it would be the sea, but no, I wouldn't know the river, no. Okay. That's, yep. that's, that's, uh, that's, that's it, yeah. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Yeah, of course I'm chanting something that I don't fully yeah. appreciate the understanding of and furtherance of a cause I really don't understand. And in point of fact, in his own words, don't fully subscribe to. But, you know, it's just au courant. That's what you do. And I great, know- great, great ex- example of the independent thinkers that are incubating on these campuses. And a lot of the pro-Palestinian protesters, we just want a ceasefire. Please, you know, you've killed the, the Israel. Netanyahu has killed 10,000. And, and half of them are children. And we just want a ceasefire. Now it's not the time for a ceasefire. Did we have a ceasefire? We were attacked here in the U.S. Just as the United States would not agree to a ceasefire after the bombing of Pearl Harbor or after the terrorist attack of 9-11, Israel will not agree to a cessation of hostilities with Hamas after the horrific attacks of October 7th. Ray in Barrington, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning. Your, your, your term skeptic, Dan, I have to agree even beyond that. They're, they're not going to change. My most basic question on the withholding of funds and that is why do these people give millions and millions of dollars to universities that have billion dollar endowments billions and billions in endowments when for a fraction of that money they could donate it locally and help some kids have a chance to make it ahead like your scholarship program you've been talking about well you know why that is because uh, they want to I mean, some of it is is from comes from a good place. I had a great experience at Cornell, and so I want other kids to have a great experience at Cornell. They have this great department or this great professor, so I'm going to endow this chair for this professor, or I want to support this department because it produces great engineers or something like that. So, yeah, to some extent, I, I get it, but... Um, Right. Um, after your uh, endowment eclipses thirty or forty billion dollars, uh, and you're charging eighty grand uh, for tuition, room and board, subsidized by the federal government, at some point, do you say, "Well, you have all the resources you need to have a good engineering department and to hire and retain great professors." Now let's take a look at what you're actually doing on campus. 
And maybe we use the power of our purse strings collectively as alums to say, you know, you have a job that is broader than having this great engineering department that I like or this great English lit department that I like, although that's pretty rare these days. Uh, and um, and I just don't see that. I see, as I said before, in the, against the backdrop of Ken Griffin and Bill Ackman and um, and, and the Hunt family and, and others, the Huntsman family, I should say, with respect to Penn and others, is uh, this pullback is uh, very convenient. And it's after underwriting all sorts of uh, horror on campus for so many years because the combination of it coming from a good place and then the other piece of it is status. Uh, you know, I mean, it's the I got my name on the arts and sciences building or I want to protect the status of my alma mater as an elite school because that all only serves to brandish my reputation more as a graduate of that school. You know, there's there's some there's there's multiple motivations all mixed in, some good and and some venal, you know. Yeah, I I think the status part of it. You're right. The to add their name on the chair or their name on the building or whatever uh, trumps the other stuff. But again, for the dollars involved, I, I don't know what the fraction would be, but for a small part of that, they, they might have an opportunity to save X number of uh, kids in the ghetto on the west side, wherever. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Thanks for the call, Ray. You think uh, Ken Griffin's? $500 million would have uh, served Harvard better or served Chicago better. And I, and he was a, a huge philanthropist in Chicago. So oh God, I'm just using him as were broken. I, I'm just using him as an example. Um, but but of course, I mean, the answer should be obvious. Well, listen uh, to John Kirby. I mean, because uh, they asked him yesterday about in these protests, because they're not all peaceful. I mean, the one in Chicago, uh, shots fired. We had a police officer maced. The well, man who and, had the gun, and, and, he's, and, he was uh, not charged, but the person who made the police was charged. Uh, at Amherst, 57 people were arrested. Yeah. Okay. And here's, the College of University of Massachusetts, Amherst. All right. And here's, here's Kirby. Keep, keep, keep using the phrase peaceful protest, why don't you? How concerned is the White House that these demonstrations will spiral out of control? No, we believe in the right of peaceful protest. Nobody wants to see peaceful protest turn violent. Or turn dangerous. Yeah, well, that's just a pro forma statement. Of course, that's true. But of they're course already that's turning true. violent. They, they, they're just you, you, ignoring it. You, 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 you can run around um, calling for Israel to be Israelis to be pushed into the sea if you want. You can uh, run around calling, uh, accusing Israel of war crimes. You can protest for a Palestinian state. I mean, protest. The uh, incursion into Gaza by the Israelis. You can protest whatever you want. Nobody's saying you can't. I mean, it's the, it's the statement with any protest over any issue. It's just that uh, incidents of violent conduct are minimized when it comes to particular protesters and, and amplified when it comes to other protesters and other issues. That's just a function of press coverage. But it has nothing to do with Palestinians' right to protest or, or or Palestinian sympathizers right to protest go ahead speak your peace peacefully Kathy Hochul the governor of New York was trying to talk tough I mean 
it, it should be embarrassing to Cornell grads mm. and undergrads and the Ivy League what's happening, but it's not. It should be embarrassing that you have to stand, as the president of Cornell did, at a press avail with Kathy Hochul, with the governor of your state, or the state where the school is located, right? It's in Ithaca. And you have to listen to her lecture the Ivy League effectively on the subornation of anti-Semitism. How embarrassing that moment should be, but it's not. These are young people who are in an environment that is intended to protect them as well, and their parents need to know this. So after these hateful posts came out, we contacted social, our, our state police to assist law enforcement with the investigation. You also are aware that it's not just campus, local, state, but also the FBI has been involved. Our president can address that. But also finding out how to make, identifying who made the threats, and holding them accountable because you want to let people know if you're going to engage in these harmful actions, hate crimes, breaking our laws, you will be caught and you will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Yeah, we're real scared. I mean, uh, Cornell, Cornell won an award for uh, this uh, this past month for its diversity and inclusion. Oh, really? I think they should hand that back because 22 percent of the population at Cornell is Jewish. And people are handing out flyers that say, watch out, Jews, jihad is coming. Well, here's some of the posts that got law enforcement involved. Going to bomb the Jewish house in retaliation for the murder of 500 martyrs, you've been warned. Uh, this, uh, this is uh, you know, Cornell University, a message board. If you see a Jewish person, in quotation marks, on campus, follow them home and slit their throats. <gasps> Rats need to be eliminated from Cornell. Boy, where does that – that's at Cornell. Where does that come from? I wonder. I don't wonder. But I know people are, you know, just like your gasp, shocked. Not shocked at all. Have you been on a college campus lately? No. Most people haven't. Have you talked to people who have been on a college campus yeah. lately? I did. I mean, I checked out with Georgia Tech, like, what's going on here? I need to know, and – you know, you know where our family stands. Where do you stand? And um, Georgia Tech's pretty quiet. He's, they have other things to worry about. But this this Jewish Living Center that you were mentioning, uh, Molly Goldstein, she's the president of the Jewish Living Center, which is now under twenty four surveillance and protection but she's saying that uh the 22 percent that are jewish a lot of them are thinking about leaving i would say all students are absolutely terrified people don't don't know what to do with themselves and whether they should stay or leave campus yeah well that's why franciscan university offered uh an easy transfer for any jewish student at like place like cornell that feels uncomfortable get you right in good uh catholic university in ohio driving uh, them out that's what uh, they want at, Adam, Dallas, Texas. Yeah, hi. So I, I'm in kind of a unique situation. I'm not raised Jewish, but married into a Jewish family, and so hit close to home. One thing I didn't understand about Israel's response is as soon as this happened, they should have said, look, go to Hamas, go to the U.N., and say, we're giving, every, we're giving them five days. Return the hostages. Return over everyone who did this. They're not going to do that. But and then they say, "Oh, you're getting the full brunt of our military." That helps 
cut off this propaganda nonsense basically at the knees and really help, I think, would help have give more credence to Israel's response. I'm not saying Israel's response was, was bad, but I, that's something like, why? Because that's what separates this from Pearl Harbor 9-11 is they took hostages in this situation. You know what Thanks. I mean? Thanks for the call, Adam. Appreciate it. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the, top of the morning, Dan and Amy. It is uh, Halloween. Yes, trick or treat. What are you going to be handing out at the Proft household this evening? Handing out? What am I going to be getting? Because I'm obviously going out to trick or treat. <laughs> All right, what are you going to dress up as? Down where I'm at in southwest Florida, I am a kid, uh, relatively (laughs) speaking. So if the 50-year-olds don't trick-or-treat, there's no (laughs) trick-or-treaters. That is so true. You could dress up and go out with Hayek. What are you? you (laughs) I'm Superman. (laughs) Oh, aren't you cute? Oh, come here. Let me give you a little candy. Barton Swaim writing in the Wall Street Journal, down with Halloween's ironic death cult. Candy and costumes are fine. He is pro jack-o'-lantern. Uh-huh. Uh, but the day, like the world, has become too ghoulish. Has Halloween become too graphic and ghoulish? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. He uh, concedes to Swaim, my version in part arises from my own Hidebound pre-modern Calvinist outlook in which death is no laughing matter, and necromancy is forbidden by God. But, uh, but he's more talking about the industrial cartoon death cult that Halloween has become. It's impossible not to notice that Big Halloween is a bourgeois phenomenon. Maybe it's a matter of income, but I wonder if it's also an expression of religious indifference. Lower-income ho- uh, homes are far likely to be observant. And religious people tend not to find amusement in images of hell, torment, and butchery. Uh, Also, for the working poor, death isn't so far away as it often seems to the well-off. In poor neighborhoods, people die younger. Experiencing so often the after-effects of death makes one perhaps less inclined to celebrate it in an amusing uh, communal way. It's a little dark here, but, you know. It is. 
It's an argument. Ha, uh, yeah, I find ha- cer- certain Halloween directions absolutely morbid and grotesque, and I'm not into that. I don't like horror films. I cannot stand haunted houses. Just even the thought of them, because uh, I just I went in once as a kid and I got hit in the face, and I've never been back to a haunted house. Yeah, scarred for life. It is. Dramatic. Did you mm-hmm. did you go to haunted houses as a kid? Yeah, no, I loved it. You know, I, I, you know, this is why, like, I, I, I understand what Swaim is saying here. Um, and he goes on to to talk about how you know ubiquitous Halloween is. It, the the uh, Halloween costumes and and opportunances are out in stores in the summer. You know, this has become the run up to Halloween is 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 rivaling in, the run up to Christmas. Yeah, it starts in August with pop up stores. Um, and and it's just. And it's and it's ubiquitous. Last year, he writes or later uh, when he's talking about um, after this walk he went on where he saw all the competition you're describing of who can come up with the most elaborate and ghoulish and gory uh, lawn presentation. Right. The decorations are a little He uh, He said. As I watched an NFL game later, one ad after another appeared for Halloween-themed horror shows. Images flashed across the television screen of a screaming little girl, an ominous figure with a long knife emerging from the dark, a man staring petrified at something out of sight. These scenes would have terrified me as a child. Why are we allowing little eyes to see them? Nobody likes to scold, but the yearly observance that used to be Halloween has taken a dark and unwholesome turn. My fear is that ironic celebrations of death are becoming less and less ironic. Hmm, well... Yes, there's something to that, um, the uh, uh, pro-death cult nature of our politics, at least among, I don't know, half the population or about. Uh, but, you know, the uh, yeah, I'm not totally on board with him because I like horror flicks. I like haunted houses. Yeah. Um, I don't know about the, the – even like the elaborate competitions for the, the lawn decorations. I, you know, I mean, I – it's a little much for me. It's not something I would do, but I mean, I don't, I don't find it um, dark or unwholesome in in that sense. I think it's, I think you have to take it in the spirit in which people are, most people are doing it, I, I, because mm-hmm. you have some elaborate uh, uh, f- and even frightening uh, lawn arrangement. Doesn't mean that you're some sort of Wiccan or you're. Well, did you hear what happened in North Carolina? <laughs> There was a groundskeeper who was mowing this lawn in uh, China Grove, North Carolina, and he thought it was a Halloween prop. It turned out it was a dead man. He was last seen by his family October 8th. He was face down half naked in the yard, and the groundskeeper's like, oh, this is really good. This They got me on this one. That's good. So he mowed around the body. Well, okay. <laughs> I mean, it is a one-off, but I, like, you know... <laughs> Ghoulish, it's creepy. They're they're just looking more realistic every year, and people keep adding on and adding on and adding on. Well, and it's all of it is just it's all just marketing to sell stuff, yeah. though. Oh, yeah. and, and, and people, and, and people buy the stuff, uh-huh. right? Well, that's you know because marketing works. I mean, even the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, there's this uh, rundown of all the warnings they're putting out and they're they all have uh, that surround halloween and they all have these you know like halloween themed warnings like um make a safe uh, sleep environment for your baby and it's is your baby's crib full of nightmares and it's like this crib with this picture of this 
horrifying scarecrow like Sawtooth Jack out of uh, Dark Harvest. I told you I like horror, horror movies. Yes, um, do. In the crib, and it's like, what? what? I know. Why would you put that? It's like another one is about um, uh, uh, how to you know safely carve a pumpkin, and it's like uh-huh. the knife ghost cometh, and it's like a ghost <laughs> with all these knives sticking out of him <laughs> behind a guy who's saying, I know how to carve a pumpkin. It's just weird. You know, everybody gets into this spirit of like a race to be the most frightening and the and and to some extent gory. Uh, so that right. so that's one aspect of it. the other aspect, of course, is the costumes, particularly well, among girls. But tell you like yeah, I was at Georgia Tech and University of Alabama this past weekend, and um, wow, the girls like to dress up. You're right. Sometimes it, you know, well they're young and maybe they want to show off their bodies. So it's you know. You take it to a new level. You're like, why? It's an excuse to dress up like a whore. Well, <laughs> I mean, some of it is. Uh, you see it on the streets of Chicago. I oh, mean, it's. I, some of it is pretty. I mean, but it's also. It's like, uh, is that any different than what you see on any particular given night? Yeah. Day, nice day, or in an airport. Um, so you know, I don't know. I don't know that Halloween is uh, something that is so separate and distinct from the larger culture that we need to be as upset by it as Barton Swaim seems to, who, who, by the way, whose writings I love. But I just think it's, yeah, I mean, it's it maybe it's indicative of something, but, but there are examples of this every day in America that are indicative of the same thing, mm-hmm. uh, I suppose, with less celebration attendant to it. But George in Naperville, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Yeah, it should be all about the adventure for the kids to go up a door and say trick or treat and the Peanuts Halloween special with the great pumpkin. That's what's important. There you go. Thanks for the call. So after you're done trick or treating and you have trick or treaters maybe at your place, are you going to hand out whole candy bars like Mike Scott is going to do, which surprises me. That's a big ask. No, I hang out. I hand out uh, pocket copies of the Constitution. (laughs) course we're all laughing you know what what like i mean all this talk about getting kids off i mean i you know i obviously when i was young it was all candy and that's all i cared about too but you know i'm trying to um set an example oh okay Uh, what what happens in lakeview uh you hand out uh uh bulletproof vests cartridges yeah i was gonna say you have reloading stations (laughs) No, but if you leave and you leave a bat, you know, like a bat, if you have to run an errand or something and you leave a thing of candy out front, that thing doesn't stand a chance. They just come and the whole thing in. Oh, there's no restraint. There's I'll no just take one rest- and leave no. some for the other kids. No. Yeah. What, what a surprise. No. Oh. Uh, give me about- that. Give me that Halloween. Give me that. Give me that. Well, they should have, there should be a <laughs> Gimme Dad Halloween candy station at on the fifth floor at City I wonder Hall. if Brandon Johnson and his wife are going to take their kids trick-or-treating in their neighborhood or if they're going to go, you know, to a different neighborhood. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, well, why not? I mean, He's got uh, 130 cops following him around. He's, they should be plenty <laughs> safe. Uh, what, about, what about horror movies? Mm-hmm. Since we're on the topic and since I'm more interested in movies than in actually interacting with the public. Uh what about horror? You you didn't watch any horror like the uh, horror movies. I watched movies. Exorcist once. I never made it through, and mm-hmm. then uh, I watched one of the Friday the Thirteenth, mm-hmm. and that was in a theater. In a theater in Mount Prospect, and that's uh, never again. Yep. 
What about stand horror films? What about? I mean, I guess you could call Friday the Thirteenth a revenge horror movie, but like, what about uh, Prom Night or oh. Carrie? Yeah, I yeah, watched that. Are, you watch Carrie? I did. <sighs> and and did that teach you to treat girls that had, you know, less going on for them that weren't going to prom after prom after prom and. Being being crowned uh, homecoming queen, did it teach you to treat people who are, yes. you know, I learned ha- a life lesson watching yeah. Carrie. Right, you better mm-hmm. don't you better treat the uglies with some kindness, otherwise it can come back to haunt you. So that's a pretty good message, I think, from some of these horror movies. Yeah, especially speaking as an ugly. Uh, Ed in Glen Ellen, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey Dan and Amy. So last uh, Easter, when Menards had their Halloween stuff, well, maybe not Easter, maybe it was Fourth of July. And anyways, <laughs> as as we're uh, walking through Menards, you know they've got the animatronic stuff, motion sensitive sensitive stuff that uh, triggers as you walk past. And mm. I gotta tell you, it, when you walk past this huge, I don't know, eight foot tall thing that says, "I'm here for your soul." <laughs> it, that's 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 what it said. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, it's, it's not, you know, well, it's not just fun stuff. You're on notice. Uh, I'm here for you. <laughs> no, I'm here for your soul. Mm-hmm. Well, oh my gosh, that's the same. That was yeah, JB Pritzker's re-election campaign slogan. So I mean, <laughs> you know, why not? He's popularizing Dark. it. Thanks for the Got call. Got a text out. message. Dan and Amy, you know those very tall skeletons, which they're everywhere in Lakeview. Yeah, I've seen those. Oh, uh, that you can position that are cool. They cost around eight hundred dollars. Well, that's why that's what Bart's talking about. It's a bourgeois thing, just like the Christmas decorations, just like you know Christmas. Uh, uh, what was the Christmas vacation? Right, yeah. that was the Chevy Chase movie. Right. The, that with you know the over the. I mean, that's the the parroting of part. of something that is reflective of reality, right? But the problem is, there's a house on Byron and Southport. They've had that skeleton up for years, and then at Christmas time, they put a Santa hat on it. And then they put it in. I think it's so grotesque and that should be taken down. I mean, where there's no rules anymore. There's no, you know, I don't know. Best. Just, uh, what, what what did you used to go? I, I think we've had this conversation before, but refresh my recollection oh, when I, you went trick-or-treating. I can't say. Cause Homecoming queen? What? No, I, well, I was a Barbie doll one year. Shocker. Okay. Um, I was a tip, tu- tube of toothpaste. I was a crest tube of toothpaste. I'll tweet that out. I did that for years because that was an easy costume. Static cling is always an easy costume. You just mm-hmm. tease your hair and put, you know, tie, you know, tie, pin socks, pin socks and underwear and to you. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's about. But I, then I, when I was a kid, when I was really desperate, I put. Well, I can't say because I think I'd get fired. Can you hold you on a second? About? Let me talk to Justin. Get fired? How could you get fired? Oh, for I dressed. Okay. wore as a, a, a Halloween costume as a kid. What are you talking about? Because I dressed as a ghost. Oh, that oh my gosh! <laughs> what? <laughs> what? But but it was so original, uh, right? Well, you can't. Were, were you were you like a horish ghost or just? No, a ghost? I just was a ghost. I cut two holes in the eyes mm. and one for my nose, and I was a ghost. Mm. Um, that was I, like the low man. Like you needed something fast, and you had to get out the door, and that's what I did. I alternated between. Going as William F. Buckley Jr. and oh uh, G.K. Chesterton, <laughs> and uh, the kids seemed to like that. Yeah, I'm sure. No, I'm Chesterton. sure everybody knew who you were, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, I, I do love some of these Halloween costumes that are now the memes that are making their ways around. This is this is really good. I mean, I'm going to describe it. So it's a little theater of the mind here. But there's this little girl with a, a head and like a Biden head on her shoulder and the hands around her neck with a T-shirt that reads, quit sniffing me. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's pretty good. That's, That's good. Got a good. lot of text messages. Dan and Amy, the original Carrie was the last horror movie I ever watched in the theater. I hate horror films. And then Daughter and her friends are trick-or-treating as The Purge. The Purge? That's not bad. Yeah, that's a, that's d- disquieting, but, I mean, that's yeah. part of the point. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, last horror movie was Carrie. That's a lot. I mean, there have been some, there have been some good. The... Um, James Wan is like really talented and he's done some great and I'm not just talking about the Saw movies. Um uh but um he's done some great horror movies. Uh the uh, the Warrens, the horror movies about the Warrens, which is, you know, based on a true story. The, these are exorcists. Um the um uh why am I blanking on the name? Uh The Conjuring. The oh. Conjuring, the couple conjuring, especially the first one was really good. So I mean, I, there's there's you know artistic quality to some of them. There's a lot of the slasher movies are just gore and shock value, but but like The Conjuring, what was that uh, called? Like the, Meatloaf the Witch or Meathead? The, the Witch was really good in terms of uh, horror movies for, of of the recent past. What would you ask? What was a Bradley Cooper movie that you? Oh, uh, Meat Train, Mid- Midnight Meat Train. <laughs> that's <laughs> not no, that's not that's strictly okay. for what? to see how much gore you can tolerate before. You turn into a monster. <laughs> that's basically that's the that's what that the point of that movie and and many like it, but that's <laughs> the most extreme example I can think of offhand. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM five sixty. The answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM five sixty. The answer. Dan and Amy, just a postscript on our conversation about uh, Halloween there before the break. Two things. One, another uh, like well-produced horror movie, a well-done horror movie. Uh, it was, And one of the producers was our friend Neil Edelstein, oh. new tour grad. He's not proud of it, but he was. Uh, but also this. Oh, The Ring is the, the what ring. I'm talking okay. about. Yeah, The Ring. Uh, but also this. Um you know, like The Conjuring, which is based on true stories and the life of Ed and Lorraine Warren. The other thing, and I know the counter argument, but it also conveys that evil is real in this world. It's not, it, I mean, in a sense, it's the supernatural, but it's also real. And, uh, and maybe that's a positive thing. Now, the flip side is to say, well, it's presented cartoonish and not, nothing to be afraid of and evil's always conquered and that's not exactly necessarily how it plays out but that the demonic is real and it is something to be concerned about and feared i don't know i don't know i guess i'm trying to rationalize my own fandom of horror movies anyway uh glenn lowry yeah well real quick should i see the conjuring or is it going to be too traumatic no i don't i don't think i think the conjuring the first one was i mean it's 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 one it's a um, as I said, James Wan is a talented filmmaker. There were some scenes in there 
that were different than the standard issue horror movies where you actually, and I'm not talking about gore wise, where you actually like you, you know, you get jolted. I mean, it's, it's surprising. Um, so it's, it's well done. It's, um, yeah, it's, I think you should see it Okay. or at least see how much you have, you can get through. <laughs> okay. Um, but that's a good movie. I mean, that's a quality film, even if you don't necessarily like the material. All right. Anyway, uh, Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, we've talked to them many times. We've talked about them many more times. Uh, Glenn is an uh, econ professor at Brown. Uh, John is a linguist, linguic, linguists professor, easy for me to say, ironically, linguist professor at um, Columbia. And, uh, boy, I'd like to have them back just to talk about what they think of the Ivy League these days. Columbia, 100 professors uh, signing on to a letter defending students that were defending Hamas. That's There's Columbia University for you. Um, but um, on uh, Glenn Lowry's podcast, which is always a good watch slash listen, uh, he and John uh, routinely get together to bat back and forth salient issues of the day. And, you know, Glenn is a generation older than John, so it's interesting to get the perspective, too. I mean, for those of you who don't know, they're both uh, black gentlemen, academics. So um, Glenn uh, raised the question. This is a good one. Is there value in listening to encouraging people to tell their individual stories of experiencing racism? I'm talking about black people. Is there value in black people sharing their individual stories of experiencing racism and distributing those stories? The answers may surprise you. Take a listen to uh, McWhorter. He goes first. All right, let's move on. J.P. Hollywood writes, hi, Glenn and John. A friend saw my copy of Woke Racism. He said he's read some of John's articles. And against my better judgment, we entered into an extensive and at times heated conversation on the topic of race and racism in America. My friend would declare himself a man of the progressive left, and I'm center right. Whenever I spoke of the objective facts, for example, there are 10 to 20 unarmed black men killed each year by police versus his guess of over a thousand. I was told repeatedly, quote, you need to speak to more black people on their actual experiences, close quote. I said I'd take it under consideration, but I told him I wouldn't engage on the topic again with him until he did the work on studying the facts. Listening to such stories could add a very human touch to a difficult topic. However, I actually don't see the point of either being lectured to or listening to discrete personal experience of racism, which I don't, nor should anyone deny exists. While I think I'm better off not engaging again with this friend, do you think there's value in listening to people's individual encounters of racism? No. Yeah, no. I thought that was what you were going to say, and I think that's a really good question, don't you? I mean, that it that, is. Yeah, and here's where I'm, I'm not that. holding. I'm not holding back. Yeah, this is my okay. unvarnished me. No, because unfortunately, the nature of the culture is such that for a great many people, when you ask them that question, they're going to exaggerate. 
it's a very sad tendency I've seen all my life. Or they're going to pick some one thing that happened to them in their 45 years with the implication that that's all of life. That tendency is too strong. It's understandable. But that means that if you're looking for an objective sense of what's really going on, you can't do that. Now, there are plenty of black people who don't do that, of course, and I don't have any numbers. But especially, you know, once you're dealing with educated people, no, you can't. The testimony I hate to say that it's it's too likely to be distorted. And so, no, and, you know, imagine this person you're talking to really thinks that, you know, a thousand black men are iced by the cops every year. And they really think that. That shows you how hard it is to get through to a certain kind of person and why I sometimes trim my sails. Somebody like me is talking about how that wasn't racism or racism wasn't all of it. And there's somebody actually thinking that 10 one hundreds of black men are killed by the cops every year. And it's understandable why they don't want to hear anything but, you know, racism, racism, racism. But if you're dealing with somebody who has that figure in their head and you tell them the real figure and they simply can't listen and they think that somehow talking to a black person will give you more accurate information, such as what they believe, that somehow talking to a black person will teach you that it really is a thousand rather than 20, that person can't be reached. As I say, in woke racism, you have to choose your battles. And I'm sure that person is a great person in many, many ways. But on race, that person is unreachable. And you and that person should talk about cooking and football <laughs> and and only murders in the building. They're, they're not reachable. It's, it's not a it's not a worthy conversation. Three one two six four two fifty six hundred turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six DA turnkey dot pro text line. What's your answer? To that same question that was posed by a listener who then Glenn took up and posed it to John before posing it to himself. Listening to people's individual stories of experiencing racism is their value. Here's Glenn's response. Do you think there's value in listening to people's individual encounter of racism? And your answer is no. My answer is no, too. You say exaggeration, sure. Um. You know, I'm a social scientist. The first thing that comes to mind is that anecdotes are not data. That is, idiosyncratic reportage doesn't substitute for systematic observation. And, you know, it's a little bit like the climate debate where people point to weather events and they say, see, you know, know, climate is the deep structure of things. The weather event is the ephemera that's bouncing around the the line, you know, sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. You don't want to put too much weight on any given event. Uh, There's also the performance aspect to it. You know, you cherry pick your own experience in order to reinforce a certain narrative. Even if you're not exaggerating the experience, it was one event out of an entire life that you're never going to let go of. And anytime the question comes up, you trot that event out. Yeah. I mean, I think they both make really good points um, about this. So, and you see this happen all the time, and it's not just on race. I mean, the uh, analogy he used to the climate, same thing. The the wildfires in Hawaii or the hurricane in Florida or uh, some other uh, one-off event. We say, well, see? See? I mean, isn't that what you hear from those that are so committed to that position? Well, they're so committed to that belief, and then the positions that flow from that b- belief, like, the elimination of combustion engines that you you cannot get to them and what then what happens as uh, McWhorter said as well is 
that the the conversation about race with people like that is you have to start from this phony premise that America in 2023 is Watts in 1963. And it's just not true. So if you can't start from a premise where we both agree what's true, the number of unarmed black men killed by police on, in, on, in, in a year, then you can't have a conversation. This is not to excuse incidents of racism. It's not to excuse incidents of uh, excessive force by police. But it's to recognize the reality so the response is proportional to the issue. And you can't get there if you can't start from what is reality. McWhorter also uh, goes on to uh, talk about another phenomenon, sort of uh, riffing off of and parroting Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility, which, by the way, one of the great book reviews I've ever read was his evisceration of White Fragility. It's a fun read. Uh, anyway, McWhorter talks about Black Fragility. The little things that happen to you or to me are supposed to be our entire lives. This is all of life, crushing experience every time we leave our homes. That's a, that's a terrible thing. But then for a white person to get that message and actually treat you that way, you feel like you're, it, it feels ridiculous and, and demeaning. It reveals the lie in it when white people actually take that lesson to heart, which means that, no, racism does exist. And we're talking about the personal kind. But the idea that you're experiencing it every day and that you need therapy about it, et cetera, it's a vast exaggeration because time has times have changed. Yeah, it's it's that sort of thing. And that includes the cops and you know, people. People can exaggerate. That's not to say here I am, you know, pulling pulling my punch. Yes, there are horrible things that happen. But that business of the cops being the entire background of yours and my lives that's just not true. It's a, it's an exaggeration. And um, I'm, I hope that people will start calling it out. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line, Chuck in Delavan, Wisconsin. I uh, did numerous uh, Chicago public schools for three years. Uh, I worked for a company called UBM. Everybody was nice to me. I was always in black neighborhoods. I did... <clears throat> the Jewel Oscar on 95th and Stony Island. And on a Friday night when I was handing out all the checks, I had 30 workers. They were all black. I was the only white guy there. And I said, we're going to 5147 Federal on Monday. And half the crew said, we're not going. And it was the projects. It was back behind a police station. We had to do 40 apartment buildings. It was in uh, September. And trying to get everything ready for people to move in. And they said, we don't like the people that live there. And I said, well, if you quit, you, you're not going to get late you're not going to get unemployment half the crew they said we don't like the people to live there so there's racism within their own and i had to call a union hall and there was no black guys that came out but it was mexicans and whites and i was able to finish the project so there's just like me i don't want to hang around with white trash so thank you for taking my call <laughs> thanks for the call chuck chuck is always full of surprises yeah isn't he? I mean, there may be something else but uh, other than racism. I mean, that uh, one uh, neighborhood doesn't like the residents of another neighborhood or something. But, but yeah, I mean, that, the point is, and this is the point that, that uh, in part Lowry and McCorder are making, is that, you know, it's, about, it's, it's, it's personal. It's not systemic. 
So, yeah, there are personal incidents of, of racist conduct. Of course there are. There are personal incidents, uh, people experience of all sorts of ignorant, uh, ignorant, uh, ignorance and, and boorish behavior and unkind, uncharitable behavior. Uh, sometimes it has to do with race. Sometimes it doesn't. But, um, but the idea that your experience can be extrapolated to make some sort of commentary on a society of 330 million people or uh, an institution in service of uh, that, that many people, the federal government, or some uh, significant subset of that many people, I mean, it just, well. it, it just doesn't hold up. Got a lot of text messages. One is uh, Dan and Amy sharing all the individual stories only perpetuates the hive mind. Well, that's sort of the point that um, that McWhorter was making, uh, wasn't it? All right. Coming up, we got Frank from Arlington Heights with his in-depth history minute. So we want to make room for that. We'll be right back with Frank. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Have we given up on Frank's sonar? Oh, there it is. There it is. We got to have Justin come up with a riff on this. It's time for in-depth history with Frank, the teacher from Arlington Heights, because there's nothing new in this world. Just the history we don't know. Frank, go. Good morning. Good morning. It's October 31st, and you know what that means. It's Reformation Day. On this day in 1517, Catholic priest Martin Luther posted his famous 95 theses to the cathedral door in Wittenberg, Germany. This act of intellectual defiance led directly to the Reformation, which, along with the Renaissance, the Age of Exploration, the Scientific Revolution, and the Enlightenment, was one of the bridges from medieval times to our modern world. Now, Luther's choice of October 31st was not random, as he knew All Saints Day on November 1st would bring many leading lights of the Holy Roman Empire to Wittenberg for worship and to see the many relics there. No doubt Luther, with the help of Gutenberg's printing press, succeeded. Now, on a personal level, Martin Luther was a somewhat neurotic fellow. Perhaps some of this is caused by the chronic gastrointestinal issues he faced. In fact, this issue is so well documented that historians actually debate whether his epiphany that salvation could be achieved through faith alone, was revealed to him in a moment of such physical stress. What is certain, though, is that in our times, October 31st has been transformed into a holiday that rivals Christmas as adults and children start shopping in July for just the right costume. Oh, and one more thing, so we can honor the Celtic tradition of this day. And in the words of Conal Cochran, the proprietor of Silver Shamrock Masks and Toys, Oh, nice. Happy. Halloween. <laughs> Very ghoulish and a nice Halloween uh, season of the witch reference. Um, by the way, um, I am firmly in the camp that Martin Luther was indeed constipated. I know scholars debate that, as you said. Yes. And yes. What, camp, what fact, camp are you? I believe that, too. Yeah, yeah. He was depressed towards the end of his life. He had all kinds of he was neurotic, no doubt about it. And I, I believe that that was the case. That's so. Very good. That's uh, Frank's. In-depth dive on uh, world history. Frank, thank you as always. Appreciate that. Have a good Very day. Good. Very good. We got an impersonation, too, out of it. Yeah. Was, but there's a lot of good references in there. And, of course, what probably most people don't know is the, the whole scholarly debate about whether Martin Luther was constipated, which is a great discussion. 
what I love constipation it. talk before 7 a.m. It's riveting. Love, Frank. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Israeli Prime Minister uh, Bibi Netanyahu uh, offered this statement yesterday amid calls from many uh, representatives of uh, uh, in the UN, representatives of, of countries that uh, compose the UN, in the wake of the intemperate comments from mainly, perhaps entirely, Democrat Socialist members of Congress, people like Cori Bush from St. Louis, a card-carrying member of the Socialist Spice Girls, who called Israelis the Israeli response to the terrorist attack ethnic cleansing. Uh, here's what uh, Benjamin Netanyahu had to say. I want to make clear Israel's position regarding a ceasefire. Just as the United States would not agree to a ceasefire after the bombing of Pearl Harbor or after the terrorist attack of 9-11, Israel will not agree to a cessation of hostilities with Hamas after the horrific attacks of October 7th. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism, to surrender to barbarism. That will not happen. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says that there is a time for peace and a time for war. This is a time for war, a war for our common future. Today we draw a line between the forces of civilization and the forces of barbarism. It is a time for everyone to decide where they stand. Israel will stand against the forces of barbarism until victory. I hope and pray that civilized nations everywhere will back this fight. Because Israel's fight is your fight. Because if Hamas and Iran's axis of evil win, you will be their next target. That's why Israel's victory will be your victory. But make no mistake, regardless of who stands with Israel, Israel will fight until this battle is won. Um, it's a couple of salient points that he makes. Um, and Wall Street Journal opined on this, too. Pretty good editorial that the response you're seeing from the West in so many quarters, not completely, but in too many quarters, and uh, many other countries around the world, uh, particularly those with majority Muslim populations, uh, exactly points to the need for Israel. Uh, Wall Street Journal editorial board writing in their piece, before there was Chancellor Hitler in 1933, there were roving bands of brown shirts inflicting political and anti-Semitic violence on the streets of Germany. They too often went unchecked by police, prosecutors, and politicians who didn't understand the menace, sympathized with the offenders, or merely felt overwhelmed by the scale of the danger. Hitler gained power in part because the German state no longer could maintain its monopoly on violence in defense of small-d democratic values. Today's threats to democracy are different, but one lesson is the same and is crystal clear. 
a Western society that can't or won't muster the will to defend its Jewish neighbors and fellow citizens won't be able to defend itself. And that was the point that Netanyahu was making when he said this fight is your fight as well in the West and really the world over, but the specific appeal is to the West, no doubt. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Leo Leibovitz. He is the editor-at-large for Tablet, tabletorg.com. Leo, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. What a pleasure. Um, So um, the uh, comments of Netanyahu against the backdrop of what you're seeing, what we're all seeing on college campuses from elites largely on the left, but uh, perhaps not exclusively, although I can't think of somebody on the right who is saying the kinds of things that Cory Bush or or Premier Jayapal or AOC or Rashida Tlaib are saying. But but um, those comments and uh, against the backdrop of the overall response from the West. Yeah, I think I think Prime Minister Netanyahu has got it exactly right. You know, it, it's easy to look at this and mistake it for some, you know, fight happening somewhere else in some corner of the world that has nothing to do with us, just Israel versus Hamas. It is truly a fight between the so-called axis of resistance, Iran, but actively featuring Russia and China against all who are civilized. Now, it used to be that uh, fighting conflicts such as this was relatively simple. You knew who the good guys were, you knew who the bad guys were. The thing that makes this particular conflict so really charged and complex is that you now have 7,000 people in my hometown, New York City alone, marching in support of a terrorist organization currently holding dozens of American citizens hostage. Uh, what you do with that is mm-hmm. way more complicated and calls for action at home as well as abroad. But what can we do? I mean, I know that they claim 29 or 30 Americans were killed in Israel. Why don't we know their stories? Why aren't the, their stories coming out? Well, I, I, I'm sorry to be you know so jaundiced so early in the morning, but I think it's because so many people uh, who ought to know better, people in classrooms and newsrooms, in America's most elite institutions, simply don't care. They would much rather cheer for the terrorists beheading babies because they're, quote-unquote, some kind of oppressed minority than stop to think, what actually happened to that American grandmother? What actually happened to that young person from New York maybe being held captive uh, in some tunnel in Gaza? That is a sign of absolute you know, moral depravity. And then you have the AP. I don't know if you saw their headline after that bloodthirsty mob. Uh, went into the airport to try to look for Jewish people to to kill them. They're checking passports. Uh, the AP originally, their headline was, uh, a, it was an anti-Israeli protest. It labeled it as a protest instead of something. This is the mostly, AP. Mostly peaceful. Yeah. yeah. Mostly peaceful, right. While they're tearing, tearing down, you know, going through windows and, and busting in doors. So, you know, first of all, uh, now I'm I'm forced to cancel my plans for Christmas vacation in Dagestan. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. on a serious note, you know, sometimes you, you, you play these word games and you think it's so silly. What, who cares if they call them protesters or terrorists, et cetera? But I think it's really what you just said really explains the crux of the issue. If you look at a, at a mob of bloodthirsty savages uh, surrounding a plane and saying, we demand that all Jews be surrendered to us. And you can't bring yourself to say, this is absolutely reprehensible. These people are terrorists. There's something profoundly wrong with you and with your organization and with whatever culture made this possible. 
I mean, we're, we're seeing, we're, we're being reminded, for those who've been paying attention, about what's happened to so many college campuses in America, particularly those that enjoy the most status among Americans, ironically. We're also seeing uh, how, uh, I don't know, pointless the uh, international institutions like the UN are with the comments from uh, Secretary General Guterres, as well as uh, the resolutions, the competing resolutions, so much so that um, the uh, protestation from the Israeli delegation to wear the yellow stars, uh, did you think that was um, uh, that pointed uh, rebuke symbolically was warranted? You know, uh, yes and no. Uh, yes, because I totally understand the sentiment. No, because frankly, I don't understand what Israel is still doing, or anyone for that matter is still doing being a member of the United Nations, right. just as much as I don't understand why anyone would send their kids to college. Look, I have, a, I have a PhD from Columbia University. I taught at Columbia for several years. I taught at NYU for almost a decade. And then when I realized what was going on, I not only left, uh, but wrote an article six years ago now saying, you know, it is time for everyone who loves America, definitely every American Jew, to get out of these institutions. I tell my 10-year-old and my 12-year-old three times a week, you're never going to college. Because I don't want to spend a quarter of a million dollars in four years of your time just so someone could turn you into a knot. And so you couldn't have been surprised to, to see the letter from those hundred Columbia University professors uh, backing the students and others who were backing, essentially backing Hamas. I was surprised it was only a hundred. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, the um, the the second stage strategy of Hamas here. Um, I mean, just in terms of the uh, pro providing some definition to the description of Hamas as a death cult, I mean, they want Israelis to kill uh, to to kill residents of Gaza. They want Israelis to kill Palestinians so they can use them for propaganda purposes, right? It's it's even more nefarious than that. It's not just some you know cold calculus where we'll kill them, we'll win propaganda points. Hamas actually genuinely believes that every Palestinian who dies in this uh, struggle is a martyr uh, mm. who goes straight to heaven and therefore is benefiting in some weird way. And so they're, they're relishing doing this. Their headquarters is uh, right under the main hospital in Gaza. That's a very strategic choice, meaning that if you ever try to strike against these murderers, uh, you would be forced to do it in the vicinity of, of a hospital. It is so deprived and so evil, uh, and it shows you precisely who these people are. Um, what is your uh, handle on the uh, preparation for uh, the incursion into Gaza? And we've talked a lot about that over the last week, just how, how complicated and dangerous that sort of urban warfare is going to be. And um, uh, obviously the Israelis' commitment is pretty clear, but, um, but, but how do you expect that to proceed? What are the things that concern you most about that? I, I'll be very honest. You know, you're completely correct. This is a very, very difficult and intricate uh, operation, and it does uh, wield some good results. Yesterday, we've seen the release, um, successful release of, of the first hostage. IDF had a great operation and released right. a 19-year-old young woman. Uh, but, but you asked what concerns me, and I'll be very honest. What concerns me uh, is how we got here. And if we're being uh, very candid, uh, how we got here uh, is – Eight years of Barack Obama's foreign policy, followed by four years of, of Joe Biden's similar policy, uh, sometimes known as the Iran deal, 
a policy that rather than strike Iran isolated and starve it until these murderous mullahs go away, uh, continues to bring it back to the force, support it uh, materially by you know tens of billions of dollars, and and integrate it. Uh, the administration's word, not mine, into the region. Uh, that's a disaster. That's a real threat, not only to the state of Israel, but also I firmly believe to to vital American national interest because we are currently strengthening our most fierce enemy in the world. What do you think of President Biden's job so far in reference to Israel? I'll be honest. I am uh, pleasantly surprised. Uh, I am deeply touched by both the president's visit uh, and the president's unwavering support. Uh, I think that he truly and passionately wants to, to stand with Israel. However, I would be much more relieved if, as part of this awakening uh, of having witnessed these unspeakable acts of barbarism, the president uh, would also announce the reversal of this uh, foreign policy towards Iran and say that we're returning to sanctions, we're returning to a coalition of international pressure against this genocidal regime, and we're returning to claim uh, to claim our part in this what is very clearly uh, a bubbling global conflict. Well, sure. I mean, the 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 uh, disgusting irony of standing with uh, Israel now and against Hamas and Hamas's financiers like the mullahs in Tehran, but at the same time, I mean, America is basically funding both sides, both directly and through our energy policy, and so. Uh, we need to pick one, it would seem. I, 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 would, say, I would say something more. Uh, I would say that we need to pick none. Uh, I wrote a piece in July calling on America to end uh, military support to Israel right away. Uh, military support to Israel is really just a form of backdoor subsidy to American defense contractors. Israel doesn't need it. Israel actually loses more than a billion dollars every year simply because it is forced to buy American products rather than develop its own Uh, weaponry and and weapon systems. Uh, What I want to see, what I believe so many of your listeners also want to see, is a reality in which no American lives uh, are ever threatened by... um, Sorry. No American lives are ever threatened by these conflicts uh, abroad. Uh, I want to see a reality in which Israel is free and unfettered to defend its own interests. I want to see a reality in which America understands who its real enemies are and stands fierce to Iran. What is really important to understand right now is that the Iran deal, uh, this policy of integrating Iran into the region, isn't a form of so-called dis, uh, kind of dis not playing in, in the region. It is actually something much more nefarious. By supporting Iran, we're basically picking sides. I say... Stop supporting Iran, put the sanctions back on, stop the military aid to Israel, and let Israel defend itself in a way that also furthers and serves American interests. That is a win-win solution for everyone. Oh, that's, yeah, that's compelling. Um, what you, there's a, a, a former CIA officer who was on the uh, Iran desk who uh, argues in an op-ed that Tehran cannot sit back and watch Israel crush Hamas, and absent deterrence, like you're describing, uh, the Iranians will open a second front. What, what's your concern about this becoming a powder keg and extending beyond the region? I mean, becoming is uh, is, is is a gentle word. Uh, it already has. This morning we were uh, we were informed that the Houthis, the Iranian allies in in Yemen, uh, mm-hmm. have already started firing 
towards towards Israeli target as well. You have Hezbollah, the Iranian proxy, up in Lebanon. Uh, you have you know Iranian drones uh, fighting with the Russians uh, to kill Ukrainians uh, outside of Kiev. Uh, this is already a global conflict. The only question here is. How are we going to fight it, and when are we going to fight it? We could do it right now on terms that are beneficial to us, uh, mainly by letting Israel do what it needs to do to crush this, uh, this enemy. Or we could do it later on terms that are beneficial to our enemy, uh, and, and most likely here, uh, here at home, because these people aren't going to stop. They're going to bring this war to us, to our cities, to our communities. And I, for one, would uh, desperately want that to not be the case. Uh, you wrote this piece uh, in City Journal called American Banloo, which we talked about a bit last week. It was very interesting. Uh, it was sort of a message to uh, suburbanites uh, in the West, particularly America. Um, you know, Give us your um, distillation of that, talking about what you've seen, what you were describing in Western Europe, and the uh, potential contagion for suburban America. But look, last 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 uh, couple of weeks, I'll be very honest here, uh, really shocked me. You know, I'm, I'm I'm an immigrant to this great country myself. I was born in Israel, uh, and it was obvious to me from a certain age that I would like to uh, to have the privilege of of making my life in this great country, uh, which I love and respect dearly. To see uh, hordes of people in the streets of Brooklyn, in communities that have traditionally been made up of of you know generations and generations and generations of immigrants from all over the world. All of a sudden, behaving like those uh, like those rioters that you see in the poor suburbs of Paris, and and burning up the block quite literally, setting fires in the middle of the street in support of Hamas, in hatred of of, of Jews, in defiance of America. That to me was a, was a, was a really new phenomenon and a very troubling one. Uh, there are many reasons to how we got here, but the most Important question is, is what do we do moving forward? Uh, I have a, a bunch of thoughts that I share in the piece. They include, for example, taking very, very seriously uh, federal funding to universities that uh, allow this kind of incitement to happen. That absolutely has to stop. We can no longer continue in support with our taxpayer dollars, uh, that kind of, of anti-American, anti-Semitic uh, propaganda. Uh, but whatever we do, I think that ought to be a great big wake-up call that we need to start taking this threat seriously. It's a domestic threat. And uh, maybe cutting off some of the funding from places like Qatar to American universities while we're at it. A hundred percent. Well, who's who's funding all these protests? I mean, they just, you know, these there has to be an organizer. There has to be some kind of cash. Yes, yes, indeed there is. <laughs> there, uh, sadly, the answer is complicated. Some some of the money uh, comes as you know through a lot of these university structures from from the Qataris, but sadly, look, a lot of the money uh, for for these supposed you know peaceful non-government organizations uh, is coming from uh, organizations like the Open Society, uh, run and paid for by George Soros, uh, one of the greatest blights on on Western civilization in the last thirty forty years. Uh, we're talking about very, very large infusions of cash to hire and train these uh, these operatives. Uh, we have seen it wreak havoc in American cities because their other project is, you know, training and, and getting DAs elected mm -hmm. to do things like eliminate bail. And you, know, you guys in Chicago know better than anyone what, what that looks like. Uh, and uh, we're seeing it here, too. Uh, and, and that is also something that I think we need to address very seriously. 
Leah Leibovitz is the editor-at-large for Tablet, tabletorg.com. Leo, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer. Insert Democrat Socialist here. Runs the Democratic House law for 30 plus years running. He's promising this and he's stealing that. Where can you get that kind of money? He's using your house like his own piggy bank. Gang, 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 gang. You ought to know by now. You can pay off your house here in Illinois. But you can never keep up with the taxes. Oh, how it's always been the plan To have a taxpayer pay, no doubt Not a matter of if anymore, but when You're moving out I said, when you're moving out Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. That theme music means it's time for a weekly confab with Ted Dabrowski, president of Wirepoints, wirepoints.org, all things Illinois policy related. Boy, we got uh, two big... Uh, Reports out, one on property taxes and one on government school performance statewide. Which, where should we start? Let's start with the funding, property taxes. uh, In the north and northwest burbs where you had the uh, triennial reassessment, the median residential tax bill increased by 15.7%. That's the largest percentage increase in at least the last 30 years, according to Cook County Treasurer Maria Pappas' office. Yes. Uh, and in some places, uh, Schiller Park displays 30% increases. Oh, my God. Taxes went uh, up for more than 318,000 households and down for 92,000. Uh, commercial bill increases, the median was uh, 2.2%. But we know uh, residential property taxes mainly fund K-12 through schools. So how are they doing? Let's take a look at... Uh, Yield report card. Uh, the top lines, of course. The 2023 student outcomes. Uh, what do we see? 34.6% of the kids are doing uh, reading at grade level. 26.9% of kids are doing math at grade level. And that's with a $6 billion incremental addition in funding to K-12 through education since 2019 so they're not back to 2019 numbers which were 37 and 32 respectively uh and even if they were (laughs) you still have basically seven and ten kids in illinois that don't read at grade level and eight and ten seven and a half and ten that don't do math at grade level Uh, honestly let me say this one more time If the schools in Illinois, the government school systems in Illinois, were set up to not teach kids how to read, how to write, and how to do arithmetic, I don't think the numbers would be that different. I don't think you could worsen the numbers if the point was to not teach kids these basic skills. And at uh, Cadillac prices on top of it. Stay the course, though. Everything's good. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line. Uh, but now let's uh, get Ted Jabrowski's perspective on it. Ted, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. 
Hey, good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. Uh, how about that? And, uh, you know, please uh, elaborate on my dot connecting when it comes to uh, a favorite topic for, I don't know, the last three decades, property taxes, funding K-12 through education, and the banging you're receiving for the bucks you're providing. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's a shameless story, like you said, for three decades where, where we throw more and more money. You have to remember, we talked about these property taxes just now. Well, they're the highest in the country, or maybe New Jersey's are higher, but we're, we're top two. So we're spending tons and tons of money. Uh, it primarily goes to schools. And so we look at the school results, and, and, and most kids can't read, and, and even fewer kids can do, can do math at grade level. And, 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 you know, and it gets really sad you know, across the board. You mentioned the, the broad numbers, right? Those are the, the big statistics. But then when you start looking at, at the minority you know, there's a lot of minority cities. You know, Decatur's a big minority city. Peoria, uh, at least in the, in, in the schools, and you know, there forget forget 30% can read, and Decatur is 5% of blacks can read, and Peoria it's 7% of, of mm-hmm. blacks, and the Hispanic numbers are just a little better. I mean, that's almost like nobody can read, right? It's it's not like it's it, you know 5% of black Decatur kids, and and for whites it's something like 11%. So you know, this you're talking about a a a destruction of one, one of, of the workforce, a destruction of a, of, of a future city. And, uh, you know, pile up on top of that, that the bill keeps getting bigger and bigger. Um, it's, it's scary. And, you know, when, when you mentioned some of those, some of those increases in, in property taxes, you know, displays nearly 30% up. Knowledge, uh-huh. Norwich, 20% up. Uh, people aren't going to be happy. They're not happy already, but, uh, Maybe somebody should call Marty Moylan. Hey, a resident of Desplaines, call your call your state representative, call your state senator. What's her name? Kelly. Yeah, up there in Northwest Suburban Cook. How are they doing yeah. for you? Good. Well, Maria Pappas, who by the way looked like an Elvis impersonator yesterday, uh, she said there's over 900 different governments in Cook County, and of those 900, 672 raised their taxes. So, and there's going to be no relief in sight. So, wouldn't this motivate more people to move out of Illinois? Because the suburbs aren't going to save you. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, it's going to be harder and harder to move out because your home values are going Your home's down, being liquidated. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're screwed there. And then, two, uh, houses are much more expensive everywhere else. And then, three, these, you know, interest rates are now at 8%. So, you know, everything becomes more difficult. And, and you know, for Illinois, just, we have to see how the economy does. But um, it's yeah. all adding up. You know, it's all adding up to be pretty ugly. It's almost like uh, maybe you need to do something about where you live. It's almost like that. Yeah. Oh, gee, what a novel concept. By the way, too, just to put numbers, this what, what what do we have? What's the the K through twelve population in Illinois? Like two point one million kids? No, one point one point eight five. Oh, it's Ooh. a well, of course down, it's dropped down a good bit. Yeah, wow. yeah it used to be it used to be two point one. Now it's one point eight five. So one point eight five. So you see like a three percent drop in reading at grade level. Um, I mean, just to put like raw numbers on it, three point one percent of uh, one point eight five. That's uh, about, uh, what, um, 54,000 kids that are fewer reading at grade level than they were just three years ago? Yeah. Just well, to, you know, yeah, just to I, give you to aggregate numbers, talking about tens of thousands of kids and even more with respect to math, which is five points down from 2019. Tens of thousands of kids uh, fewer are reading and doing math at grade level. And what do you think their prospects are going through the system and then getting out and getting into the system? Yeah, and, and it's even worse than that, Dan, because you know, as we looked a few weeks ago, we looked at how many are close to grade level. And the majority are way far away from grade level. So that means that they're like, well, I don't know, one, two, three grades yeah. below. 
So, you know, they're, they're sad to say they're kind of gone. It's going to be really hard to catch up a majority of those kids because they're just too far behind. So, and, you know, um, you know, the, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. sorry. The, the other, the other big thing is, you know, this whole property tax thing is, is, is also a disaster because there's, it's kind of like they, they talk about the perfect storm. You know, we've been writing about this for a long time, but what's happening is just commercial valuations and, and, and the, the amount of commercial that we have in Illinois shrinks. They keep shifting more and more of the tax burden to homes. And you know, we saw that that was destructive for South Cook when when all the industry moved out and the, the tax bills left just for homeowners. It's kind of happening at a macro level, uh, you know, in, in Cook County where the burden keeps shifting to homes and it, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And there's another billion dollars spent by by, by um, governments in, in Cook County this year. So you put all that together and it's really whacking uh, homeowners. I, I certainly got I certainly got my surprise. I'm, I'm not happy. I'm not happy with my car insurance bill. It almost doubled because of all the other vehicles that are being stolen in my neighborhood. Jeez. Yeah, the consequences. And Dan, right. you're going to pick up the tab, right? Um, moving up. on to uh, Goshen, the uh, EV battery plant that's uh, oh, yes. heading to Mantino. Uh, I know if you oppose that and you oppose the subsidies, state and federal, that you're a xenophobe. But I found this interesting. It turns out that uh, Goshen is connected to a Chinese Communist Party paramilitary organization. Uh, hmm. It's called the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps. And in July of 2020, uh, the Treasury Department uh, of the United States sanctioned XPCC for its human rights abuses. The XPCC is a paramilitary organization that is a subordinate to the Chinese Communist Party. This is from the Treasury Department's 2020 press release. The entity and officials are being designated for their connection to serious human rights abuses against ethnic minorities in Xinjiang, which reportedly includes mass arbitrary detention and severe physical abuse, among other serious abuses targeting Uyghurs, uh, the Turkish, uh, Turkic Muslim population indigenous to Xinjiang. So uh, there you go. Uh, nothing like uh, getting in bed with uh, these folks if it wasn't not just getting in bed with them to... Uh, hail their location to Mantino, but then to subsidize them with taxpayer Illinois taxpayer dollars on top of it. Yeah, that that's the part that um, it, you know it's hard to get out there and into the news. But the, you know, there's big big concerns about about how how tied Goshen is to the Communist Party, and it's it's no secret. And it's no secret again, big big Chinese corporations and their ties to CCP. Um, the issue here is what makes it more more dangerous is is that this is. Uh, Critical infrastructure. You're talking about batteries, and that's going to be important for the defense industry in China. So, you know, this is the kind of stuff that Christopher Ray has warned about. You know, very strongly. Same thing for Blinken. Um, you know, Krishnamurthy, uh, who's, who's a Democrat, Illinois um, uh, representative, has warned about it. So, there are big, big warnings about getting in bed with the groups like Goshen. And yet, Pritzker not only invited them, but you know, he gave them a lot of that cash. Um, that was given to him by the legislature to, to, to help bring companies to Illinois. So, you know, $536 million doled out to a, a Chinese company that we can't trust. Or in this, uh, maybe I should say this, this certainly hasn't been vetted either at the national level or by Pritzker. Well, yeah, it's been, vetted, it it's been vetted to some extent by our federal government. They've got them tied to a Chinese communist paramilitary organization that's persecuting Uyghurs. I mean, you know, there's some vetting for you. I'd like to hear a response yeah. from... From uh, Jelly Belly on that. 
Well, you know, the, the things that, the, you know, we've known all this, everybody's known this, and yet uh, it, it's a little confusing as to why the Treasury isn't, uh, you know, doing more. There's, there's a certain uh, vetting that's done. It's called a Form 800. That hasn't been done by, by uh, CFIUS, which is uh, the, uh, yeah. the group that should be reviewing it. It hasn't been done by Pritzker, and it certainly hasn't been done by uh, by the mayor in, in uh, Mantino. So this is the stuff that uh, ordinary residents in Mantino are begging for. Give us a vetting process. Tell us how you did this. Tell us why we don't know anything. And uh, it's, it's, it's really, again, one of those unfair shove-down-your-throat deals. Uh, before we let you go, uh, update the story you told us about last week, the Nutra Neighbors group up there on the North Shore that you're a part of, having this uh, this uh, event with a couple of academics to talk about uh, gender identity issues. You got bounced from the Writers' Theater in Glencoe. I see that you landed at the Wilmette Library. Is that is that a go still? Well, it's, it's still a go. We're, we're you know, making sure that we meet all the, the library uh, let's call them requirements. Uh, you know, this is important. It's an important thing to have, you know, broad, open, free speech discussion on, on, on the gender issues. Um, you know, the, the library does all kinds of things. I even went to, to Rainbow Happy Hour to watch um, to watch a, a, a young lady sing about, about how important it is to be open to transgenderism. Um, and, you know, they held that there. So we're hoping that the library stays strong and holds opposing views about the concerns of, of uh, the social uh, pressure leading to more girls uh, becoming transgender. So uh, and, the library is still there, but they're asking lots of questions to make sure we don't, you know, that, well, that we abide by their rules. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, Nutrineighbors.org, if people want more information on that event next month. Ted Dabrowski, President of Wirepoints.org, all things Illinois policy related. Thanks for joining us as always. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Test scores and reading and math proficiencies may be down over the last three years, but... uh, American wealth is up across the board. Uh, Recently, the Fed and the Treasury Department released its 2022 data from the Survey of Consumer Finances, which is a survey they do every three years to ask households about their finances. And that helps uh, economists calculate things like medians. Um, And um, Noah Smith, who's a former econ professor at Stony Brook University and a blogger, had a good write-up on this. Here's uh, some of the top lines. America's wealth is way up since before the pandemic. The increase is very even across the board, with people at the bottom of the distribution gaining proportionally more than people at the top. Inequality is down, including racial inequality, educational inequality, urban-rural inequality, overall wealth inequality. Debt is much less of a problem. There's even some surprisingly good news about income as well as wealth. In other words, a rising tide is lifting all boats. Maybe we shouldn't believe all the doom and gloom that we're hearing in the media, even against the backdrop of high inflation. The biggest piece of good news is the typical American family got about 37% richer between 2019 and 2022. A lot of that, of course, uh, has to do with the value of home prices, because that's where uh, most 
middle income families' wealth resides is income prices, but it's not limited to that. Uh, of course, a lot of this has to do, I mean, the qualifiers, a lot of this has to do with the funny money that the government printed up and distributed, but that in part allowed a lot of households to pay down debt so that debt is less of a problem than it was three years ago. That's the argument. So if uh, the rising tide is lifting all boats with a little bit of uh, funny money and high interest rates that leave people holding on to an increasingly scarce asset, a home for sale, which increases the price, then what are we talking about here? Uh, it's just a sort of a stay-the-course uh, position that America's in. Is it? It's very interesting data. It's uh, a bit counterintuitive against, against some of the uh, data that we're hearing, not just on inflation, but in terms of credit card debt increasing and so forth. But that's the data the government is peddling. Let's get some response to that from Oren Cass, who is the executive director of American Compass. Oren, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Does that data surprise you? Well, you know, not necessarily. I think there's a lot of reasons when you look at the kind of finances of households to to see that that, that things are positive. In in some respects, it's it's still a follow on from all of the pandemic era policies and just the the, the amount of money we sent out the door. Um, I I think the flip side that is really important to focus on for for thinking about the health of the economy. Is, is when we look at actual, you know, things like business investment, growth in the productivity of workers, uh, you know, the things that ultimately drive our prosperity in, in the long term, there the numbers look really bad. And, and I think that's, that's the reason why there, there is rightly so much concern. And the, the, that concern uh, led you, I, I, I suppose, in part to write this piece on uh, tariffs and your argument why Trump is right on tariffs. So lay out the case. Yeah, you know, I think there's been a really interesting debate ongoing for, for a while now, since since Trump first ran for president back in 2016, about you know the effect that globalization has had on the American economy and, and how free trade is, is working for workers. And you know, for so long, economists and, and the policymakers on, on both sides of the political spectrum is tried to assure, assure Americans that, you know, free trade is good and more free trade is always better. And embracing China and bringing them into the WTO uh, and even off, offshoring all of our manufacturing to them somehow was, was going to be to the benefit of, of the American economy. And the, the reality is that that has not been the case. And, and what I think it comes down to, and, and this is the focus of, of this essay that I wrote for the Wall Street Journal, is, is that making things matters. You know, the, our, our actual ability in the American economy to, to manufacture things, to have a strong industrial base, is, is really important ultimately to the health of the economy, uh, to, to big picture measures like economic growth, and and also to 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 the more personal measures like how workers and their families are doing and and whether communities are thriving, and and all of those models that said free trade is good, more free trade will be better, 
they all ignored that. They said it, it doesn't matter whether we can make anything here. Um, and well, I mean, do do we? I mean, it's not like we don't make anything. We make lots of things, but do we need to make everything? I mean, com comparative advantage is still a real, a real principle, isn't it? Well, th there's no question that that we do still make things here, and and also that we don't need to make everything. I think you know, trade if it's working well is a great thing. Um, the the problem with trade as it has been working, and and with as you mentioned this the model of comparative advantage is the assumption is that it's actually trade, that we make stuff to send to other people and other make people make stuff to send to us. That's, you know, if you go back and read Smith in The Wealth of Nations, that's, that's what he's talking about. He specifically says the, the case for trade is that we should want to trade some part of the thing that we make here for some part of the thing that others can make elsewhere. And that's not what's been happening uh, with, with, trade, particularly with China, instead what you see are these huge trade deficits, right? And, and what a trade deficit means is that other countries, particularly China, is, are, are making massive amounts of stuff for us that in the past American workers might have made. But instead of sending that to us and in return, we make stuff and send it to them, what we're sending back to them is, is our assets, meaning we send back uh, IOUs from the federal government saying, well, you know, here's our, here's our government debt. We'll pay you back later. We send back ownership of American companies. We send back ownership of American real estate. And so it's not actually that comparative advantage that you were describing that could work well for everybody. It's, it's a total hollowing out of the, the core and, and the, the future of the American economy. And, and that's why, and this is sort of the, the central point of, of this essay in the Wall Street Journal, even as you see economists just looking at their models on the blackboard saying comparative advantage is supposed to work, actual business leaders who, who work in the economy and, and are trying to drive growth have been raising the red flag for years. Um, you know, folks like Andy Grove, who was the, the legendary CEO of Intel, back when Intel actually was the leading chip manufacturer, he said, look, you know, if, if we stop making things here, if we offshore all the production, ultimately, we're going to forget how to make things and we're going to lose the ability to innovate and, and be a technology leader. And, and Warren Buffett, likewise, looked at what was happening with China and said, you know, we're behaving like a, a family with a, a really prosperous farm that is just mortgaging it off piece by piece and not worrying about the future. And both of them, you know, no, nobody thinks they're economic dummies. Both of them looked at this situation and said, what you need is something like a tariff. You need policymakers to intervene and make it more attractive to produce things here in America instead of just importing them from overseas. Well, uh, one could argue, I mean, from a free market perspective, that one of the things they could make it more attractive uh, to produce things here as compared to overseas is to look at the domestic regulations associated with making things here. Uh, compared to other places, too. So, you know, government creates a lot of the problems and then is going to ride in by, well, uh, perhaps creating new ones with tariffs, depending on the exact nature of the tariff and who the targets are. I mean, I mean, Americans do benefit from trade with China as noxious as it is on some levels in terms of uh, everyday household goods that are cheaper than they would be otherwise. And 
And there is an argument to be made about looking at these matters through the eyes of the consumer. You want you want American you want to protect American purchasing power, too. Well, no, no question. The there are benefits to cheap stuff for American consumers, but I think it's important to understand why it's so cheap and, and what's actually happening here. You know, if 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 I were to say, well, let's just give every American consumer a credit card so that they can just go buy stuff on credit and they don't have to worry about paying for it. Uh, and we're just going to sort of accumulate that all of that debt in the federal government and someone else will pay it back someday. You could say, well, that's great for American consumers. <laughs> right. But no, certainly no conservative, no, no sane conservative would say that's that's in the long run good for those consumers or or America generally. And so I, I think it's really important to to kind of get beyond the abstractions and, and think about what it actually means for our economy if if we sort of celebrate this kind of dependence on living on credit and, and foreign producers. And, and you see it, you see it taking hold in the American economy. I think, you know, one of the most fascinating statistics that I've come across recently is that productivity in our manufacturing sector is actually declining. Not just it's not growing as fast as it used to. You actually need more workers in American factories to make the same amount of stuff that those factories could have made a decade ago. That, that's a, that is a shocking failure of our economic system. I mean, that just should not, that should not be able to happen in capitalism. And there's no way to be on that trajectory and believe that, that us or our children are actually going to be better off in the long run. I mean, I, I, you know, when I, when I think of the tariffs, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, a free market guy, as you're probably picking up, but I, I do um, hold out some concerns that um, you raise and, and others have about, um, national security sensitive products and industry and and the idea that uh, we're dependent on the Chinese communists for the production of so many pharmaceutical drugs or for uh, rare earth minerals or uh, or uh, you know all the things that go into uh, chip production for example in the in a world uh, dominated by microchips uh, to to you know to fuel a 21st century economy, I, I do get that, but I but if, it seems to me that the national security grounds are, are more compelling than worrying about trade deficits. I mean, we have trade surpluses with company with uh, uh, with countries that are not very receptive to American goods, and we have trade deficits with countries that are receptive. So it doesn't seem to me that the trade deficit focus is um, an overriding concern. Well, I'm, I'm a free market guy, too. I think it's really important to keep in mind that until pretty recently, the last few decades, the, the American understanding of free markets was a free American market with very high tariffs to insulate that market from what was very different behavior in the rest of the world, right? Abraham Lincoln was, was proudly a tariff man. Teddy Roosevelt was proudly a tariff man. Calvin Coolidge was proudly a tariff man. Um, you know, it was only in the context of the post-World War II sort of rebuilding the world, winning, winning the Cold War era, that we, we landed on this idea that 
being for free markets meant this this radical version of free trade where we were just going to try to to sort of integrate our market into a global market. And and when you when you talk about China in particular, it's really important to realize that free trade is not the natural extension of free markets. Free trade is is destroying our free market because what you have in China is a market that's now as big as ours that is that is not free at all. It is it is state controlled by an authoritarian communist government. And so if you say, well, let's have free trade with them, let's let's basically integrate our market with theirs. What you're saying is you're going to you want to allow every single policy choice that they are making over there to to infect and and disrupt and distort the American market. And and so it free trade isn't the way you get a free market here in America. If if you're thinking about China, if you if you actually value a free market in America, I think you have to say, actually, we need to be sure that that China can't be distorting it. And and that's where this this trade deficit is so important. The the trade deficit is not some natural feature of of a healthy economy in, in a healthy economy you would want to see balanced trade. We have this trade deficit because countries like China, and when it comes to something like you know semiconductors, countries like Ch- Taiwan are aggressively distorting their own markets to try to move production into them. So, so what is what is is the free market model telling an American manufacturer, well, sorry, the Chinese Communist Party is subsidizing your competitor, so you lose. Or is the free market model saying, actually, what the Chinese Communist Party does should not be able to affect what kind of competition we have in our capitalist economy? Uh, Right. Well, I mean, you know, then the Chinese suffer under the weight of their own uh, anti-competitive authoritarian policies, too, and they'll pay the consequences for that. They are paying the consequences for that. They've never realized the strength of having four times as many people as America, for example. But uh, but I take your point. Good discussion. Oren Cass, executive director of American Compass, is check out his column in The Wall Street Journal, Why Trump is Right About Tariffs. Oren, thank you again for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, this was great. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. I saw our next guest on uh, uh, on Fox Business um, and uh, just thought he was really sharp and insightful on what's happening in Gaza and uh, what can be done, prim- uh, first and foremost, to get American hostages returned to their families. His uh, name is Alex Plitzos. He's an Army veteran. He's a board member of the Special Operations Association of America and a non-resident senior fellow with the Middle East Program's N7 initiative. And he joins us now. Alex, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, so when I saw you with uh, Varney, uh, you were talking a little bit about what your you and your organization, which I, I understand is comprised of um, special forces veterans, 
are doing to try to help extract American hostages from Gaza. Can you uh, explain that to our audience? Sure. So it's not necessarily the hostages. It's more there are five to 600 American citizens who are trapped inside Gaza. That's in addition to the 10 or so folks who remain held hostage by Hamas inside Gaza. So uh, our group, um, again, Special Operations Association of America, has been working with friends and colleagues over at Save Our Allies. We're, we all came together for the Afghan evacuation. Uh, about five or six folks I worked with, we actually helped to run flights to, to support the State Department in the fall of 21 uh, while they were waiting for the Qatari government to get up and running. And then we did evac rescue operations for citizens trapped in Ukraine. So we kind of fell into the space in 21 and have been working ever since. So through techniques developed, you know, through um, some technology, some tradecraft, helping to navigate people remotely to, to safe locations while we can uh, to, we can get to a point where we can actually pull them out. Uh, it's, it's very difficult in Gaza because everything's kind of you know, walled off at the moment, quite literally. So in the meantime, it's keeping everybody safe, moving them to, to uh, safe locations and coordinating with both the U.S., uh, Israeli and Egyptian governments, uh, you know, for their locations to make sure that they're safe. They're not going to be accidentally bombed, that type you, of thing. So we, there, we know the line. Are there some Americans that are already at the at the border there near Egypt that are waiting to get out? Because uh, NBC keeps showing, you know, Americans with passports saying, we, we just just let us out of here, please. I mean, there's Americans kind of all over Gaza. We're specifically the ones that we're working with. We're not really going to talk about now just for their safety uh, right. because they're, they're still a target. Uh, but, there, yeah, there's a good amount of Americans who are definitely ready to get out <laughs> as soon as the gates are open. Uh, of, the, of the overall universe, um, how many Americans are, are, um, have not gotten to a place you would describe as a, as a safe place for now until you can extract them, you know, just to give us a, a sort of sense of order of magnitude? Um, I mean, it depends. I can't prove a negative in terms of the folks we're not talking to. But, I mean, from the ones that we are, if you take that as an overall percentage uh, representation of the population at large that we know is in Gaza, it's uh, it's several hundred that are trapped in areas where they're not particularly safe at the moment. Hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how you describe the uh, urban warfare that is uh, coming. Um, you, the, I've been using the uh, the metaphor you used of, of an anthill. But um, develop that force. What what do Israeli forces face when they uh, enter Gaza and try to begin uh, dismantling the Hamas terrorist infrastructure? That's actually a great question. So uh, people will kind of toss around different terms of what the Israelis are planning to do. I think the I think uh, they formulated it quite, you know, quite well in terms of what they're setting out to achieve to make sure it's realistic. Right. The end state's a different story, but you can't defeat an ideology with bombs and bullets. So President Prime Minister Netanyahu said that what they're setting out to do is to, quote, demilitarize Hamas. So, again, you can't defeat ideology with bombs and bullets. But what you can do is you have to then go in, conduct a giant cordon and search. We're going to have to go through the area methodically, section by section, building by building, and try to take away strategic weapons and infrastructure that would allow them to conduct an attack like that again. Um, and that's going to take time. Uh, you know, the tunnels, we, as you just mentioned, in terms of developing that a little further, there's between 50 and 100, not tunnels, tunnel complexes, right? It is massive, 500 kilometers of tunnel under the ground where they've been storing weapons, food, water, you know, everything else that they need to fight for years. So they can go on for months kind of as they are living in the subterranean, you know, world that they've created where allegedly, you know, the command center is under Al-Shifa Hospital in, in central Gaza. Um, you know, they use you know, civilian infrastructure to hide. And so the problem is you got to go in there and you got to go get it. So what they've been doing the last few weeks is what we call kinetic shaping operations. That's where they're going to launch airstrikes to try to take out as much infrastructure as they can from the air, trying to minimize civilian casualties to the extent possible, and then also try to take out the rockets that are still flying into Israel some 30, you know, 20-something days later, 
because they pose a threat to the civilian populace. Once they feel that they've done that to the extent possible, there'll be a full push on the ground into Gaza, absent any other political considerations. And then what's to come of the hostages? I mean, I know they, Hamas had offered, hey, release our, you know, our, our Palestinians and we'll release your hostages, but that's not going to happen. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's it, well, first of all, I mean, I had oversight for hostage rescue operations and policy owners in the Pentagon, so I've, I've overseen a lot of cases over the years. Um, this is by far the most complicated I've ever seen in my professional career. 200 people, 230 at this point, it sounds like, scattered all over the place in tunnel systems under the ground, potentially more than one group holding them, no, no confirmed intelligence as to where they all are, making simultaneous clandestine rescues virtually impossible, even if you could get access in the area. And the threat from small arms fire to helicopters, that kind of stuff, you know, RPGs, picture like a Black Hawk Down scenario is, is a realistic threat, right? So that's not that's not really something that's, that's likely to see. Um, you're, you're basically looking either in negotiations or when the ground force comes in. And so, I mean, Hamas knew what they were doing. That's the one thing the hostage population should inform everybody who's listening, right? It, it wasn't what they took hostages from one small village somewhere in, in southern Israel where at the end of their rampage, the set leader who was in charge of that particular group said, hey, Let's grab some hostages, go back to Israel. They took them from all over southern Israel, which means there was a directive that was given ahead of time to take hostages. What does that tell us? It tells us Hamas knew how big and how dangerous this attack was going to be because they knew they were going to incur a massive Israeli response, and they knew that they were at a military disadvantage because they don't have armor, artillery, and air power. So they had to take something to try to mitigate the advantage the Israelis had, in this case, was hostages. So it becomes a question if they're being used as human shields or actual bargaining chips. If they're bargaining chips, they should be safe somewhere, quiet, kept away from the fighting. If they're being used as human shields, then they're going to die in some, you know, command center, you know, where uh, where Hamas kept them. I mean, at the end of the day, Hamas took them against their will and are holding them, and it is Hamas's responsibility to keep them safe and keep them out of areas where the Israeli military is that were conducting operations. That's Hamas's responsibility, not Israel's. Well, how did that yeah. 19-year-old female soldier get out then? Because she was released yesterday. Yeah, so she was being held as a one-off in one location because, again, we don't know where they all are. Are they you know, groups of twos and threes here or there, or are they all off individually? Uh, that, that happened to be one, one particular area where they had intelligence where she was, and they're able to grab her, um, which is great. If they can continue to do so, that would be obviously be incredible to free everyone. But uh, like I said, this is not one of those situations where you've got a handful of hostages. We're talking you know, well over 200. So I think there's a chance we could see more of that, special operations forces operating alongside conventional as they push into Gaza. Uh, but that's, it's unlikely we're to see some sort of dramatic rescue that's going to somehow get all 200-plus out. It's going to be a combination of negotiations and then, you know, targets of opportunity where they pop up to help rescue folks like yesterday, as you just described. And so the, uh, the, the unknown of whether they're using them as bargaining chips or human shields, the only way we'll learn uh, the answer to that question is if Hamas either initiates some negotiation or responds to the initiation of negotiation for the, their release? Yes, yeah, so there have been ongoing negotiations, and there still are in Doha and Qatar. So uh, Qatar has been used as a, uh, as a uh, state to, uh, to help negotiations with the difficult actors. The Taliban had their office there for a long time. The U.S. You know, still engages through the Taliban through the office in Doha. Hamas is, is kind of uh, – their leadership is hosted there. And so the Qataris have been hosting, you know, peace talks or, or uh, negotiations. They're not really peace talks, I guess, some combination thereof. And it was just reports that the head of Israeli intelligence, the Mossad, flew to Doha this past weekend. And so there's there's definitely ongoing negotiations. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu said as much. Um, I think, you know, they're digging in their heels for demands. I believe uh, Hamas wanted, you know, massive amounts of fuel brought in. Um, and Israel said no. And so, there, you know, a deal for some of the foreigners broke down. 
but there's also problems domestically in Israel for political consideration, because if they're negotiating and all they're going to get out is the foreigners and the Israelis are stuck and they're all going to die, you know, that doesn't really work either. So it's a very difficult situation given the number of actors involved. Right. And so if, if they if but if they released uh, all the hostages or a significant per, uh, number of the Israeli hostages, then it makes them more susceptible to that ground invasion and makes it more likely that IDF would get down into those tunnels and fight it out. Right. Without concern for um, without. I mean, I, I don't want to say it this way, but I don't know how else to say it without concern for the hostages. Yeah, I mean, they're going to take every opportunity they can to try to mitigate the risk to any of the hostages that are there. They're going to try to negotiate. But at the end of the day, right, you have, I mean, you have Prime Minister Netanyahu was sitting in office, a guy who, by the way, has been running on a pro-security platform for a long time, mm. was in charge for the single largest mass slaughter, execution, torture, and rape, in some cases burning them to death, of Jews since the Holocaust in a single day. It's like when everybody talks about the mindset of like being like 9-11, this was massive in terms of the, the impact to the Israeli population that was there, the, the, the vicious and heinous ways in which people were tortured, murdered, has been unseen to date. And so he has a responsibility to protect his folks. And so people who are kind of saying, hey, you know, there needs to be a ceasefire right now, that's just not how this is going to work. And here's why. It would be the equivalent, you know, two weeks after 9-11, could say, all right, all right, stop all the stuff and missile launches in Afghanistan, you know, with al-Qaeda and the Taliban. You know, they've got a legitimate concern about U.S. military presence in the Middle East. We should really just withdraw all of our troops and, you know, not really go after them for what they did to us. Everybody in this call would look at us like you were crazy. There's absolutely no way. The Israelis are saying the same thing. You, you cannot expect us after what happened to not continue to persecute the end of this organization. But the question then becomes what happens afterwards, because there isn't a real clear post-governance plan, uh, which is why General Petraeus came out and said, hey, we'll be sure you understand the end state before you move in, because once you go in there and you clear everything out, Hamas isn't going to take back over. Israel's never going to allow it. The PLO and, the, and Fatah, which controls the West Bank, the other portion of the Palestinian territories, is saying they're not going back into Gaza on the backs of an Israeli tank. The Israelis saying they won't occupy or govern the space. So then who's in charge afterwards? Is it just a power vacuum? Somebody's going to need to rebuild and do reconstruction. You've got 2.2 million Palestinians between the halfway point and the, and the wall in Egypt right now in areas that still have to be cleared. What do you do with those folks? There's a lot of open questions right now, and that's the reason the Arab states are all concerned, because they're worried the Palestinians are going to get permanently displaced into the Sinai. So uh, this is still very much a regional powder keg. Yeah, um, good description, and as particularly with the unanswered questions that are, uh, boy, a dizzying. Um, th is there any, uh, any play that could be made to try to draw them out of the tunnels? Is there, a, is there any uh, discussion or strategy that could be uh, employed to do that or to attempt to do that? Yeah, I mean, in theory, in theory you could, you know, trying to pump you know, smoke or whatever else or things. And there's different techniques for trying to clear the tunnels out, but the complex is just so massive, mm -hmm. right? And in order to sustain air down there in a tunnel complex that massive, you have to have ventilation, electricity, everything else. So, um, you know, we see what's happening now, right? There's been no, no food, very minimal food water deliveries for over the last three weeks, and people are somehow barely managing to cling on, you know, with everything that's going. So, there is no easy, quick way to push everybody out of those tunnels without without putting hostages at risk should they be down there. And Hamas knows that they're not stupid. That's the other reason. So, and, I mean, they took them for a reason. Right. And but doesn't Hamas have enough oil or gasoline and water and food for months, and they're just holding withholding it from the citizens? Yeah, they have enough to sustain their force because they've got, I mean, their force is estimated like 40,000. I don't know how many there actually are and how many have been killed now. But it's, I mean, whatever they have in the tunnels, it's not enough for, you know, 2.2 .2 million people that are there. 
doesn't mean they still shouldn't be bringing whatever they have up to the surface. But I meant that more in terms of the relation to the question about the tunnels, about, you know, trying to get them out. They have what they need to survive down there. So unless you can flush them out using some sort of smoke, for lack of a better term, something like that, you know, to get them out of there, some sort of chemicals, and I don't know. But then what's legal under the under, uh, you know, laws of warfare and then also with the risk of the hostages, I mean, this is this is going to be a tough fight. This is going to be a, a very difficult one. And we also have... But let's not forget, Hamas has been sponsored by Iran for years. And we fought, I mean, I personally fought against the Shia-backed militias in Iraq in 2008. We've been fighting them for 20 years. So they have experience, you know, watching the tactics, techniques, and procedures that Western forces use and, you know, how to booby trap houses, that kind of stuff. And we saw, it wasn't widely publicized, but during the response to the attack on the 7th, a lot of very special Israeli operations units, uh, you know, top of the top of the line, took significant casualties because they were ambushed and there was, you know, booby traps left behind. It's very clear that they are learning from, you know, 20 years of warfare, and this is going to be a very difficult fight. He is Alex Putsas, Army veteran, Special Operations Association of America board member, and non-resident senior fellow with the Middle East Program's N7 initiative. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560, The Answer. Dan and Amy, not since uh, Mike Ditka saying, take me out to the ball game, have I heard such a cacophonous uh, public display of musical effort. Flava Flav from Public Enemy fame singing the national anthem before a Miami Bucks game. Take a listen for as long as you can. The singing of the Star Spangled Banner performed tonight by six-time Grammy Award-nominated rapper and artist Flava Flav. Stop wow. yelling at us. Stop yelling at us. You know, but again, you Ooh. don't need great range as a rapper. You just need a great act like this. Hit me! This is Flav's wheelhouse here. This is where he needs to stay. This is what he should have done instead of the Nash. Have somebody else do the Sports Single Banner where you have to do those runs and have that range. All right, so anyway, Flava Flav uh, before the box. I don't know if he's going to be invited back, at least not to perform the national anthem. Maybe 911 is a joke. Okay. 
Thank you so much. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.